welcome back to another episode of Christian Reconstruction 101. I am your host, Jeremy Walker. Episode 3 here, and we're still discussing marriage. Today we're going to talk about some biblical requirements for making marriages. I've said this before on a couple of our other episodes. If you missed those, you can go to our website at cr101radio.com forward slash Christian Reconstruction 101. But we've had two episodes now, both on marriage and discussing subjects about it. And so if you want to sketch those, go there. The biblical requirements. I'm a father, and my eldest son's now married. I have 10 more children. It's a process I'll be partaking of quite often over the number of years to come. So I had to ask myself, what are the biblical requirements for making marriages, and what is it that I'm supposed to be doing? Because that's a really big question, especially for a father. And so let's go through these. I have quite a few things I went through. Some of these may not be new to you, and some of them might. So if you are a father, a parent, a mother, a single person interested in the concept, let's just jump right into it. And as always, we discuss 2 Timothy 3.16 here on Christian Reconstruction 101. We hope to get doctrine, some reproof, potentially correction, so that, of course, we can become mature Christians able to produce good works. In this case, good works meaning creating good marriages and knowing what to do and giving good advice and all the stuff in between. So let's jump right into it. First thing I have on here, I'm going to run down the list that the natural state of man is not to be alone. Genesis 2, 18. Now, when man was first created, God said it's not good for man to be alone. So, what happened? Very simply, God made him then a woman. And uh, the two came together to become one flesh. So, the natural state of man is not to be alone. God ordained, God created Marriage is the most natural state, the best possible state for man, the best possible state for woman. So that's one of the biblical requirements as a standard, is that the general natural state of mankind is not celibacy, it's not uh, solitude, it's not this dedication to God somehow, but for man to thrive is not to be in a single status forever, but one of marriage. Next point is that man was not created for the woman, but woman was created for man. This goes into 1 Corinthians 11.9. This is very important because this has to do with the concept of authority. And these subjects I'm sure we'll get to later on in discussing because people want to argue incessantly about the subject of the original creation and were the two equal? Did both of them have the same authority? Now that there is a new creation and now we're in the quote-unquote New Testament period, is the man and woman both on the same authoritative level? Well, the answer to that is very simply no. Man has always had more authority. But that's not what most people think it is. And that's something we'll get into very much so later on in another episode. The authority of man is not 
somehow a concept of king and castle, some sovereign lord that hoards his authority over everyone, the little woman and the children. But the woman was made for man to help him. He was given a help meet. One thing we mentioned on a previous episode, which is very important, is that long before the woman was a mother, she was a helpmeet. Long before children are in a family, the woman is a helpmeet. And long after her childbearing years are past, she will still be her husband's helpmeet. She would not have and never has had a higher authority, but their union makes them one person. So it's a mistake for the man to see himself as the overlord or the woman to see herself as the underling. They are one flesh. But the woman was made for the man. His complement and his status was elevated above her and always has been. But it's mostly in culpability. And that's what authority brings. Responsibility and culpability. And we'll get into that later, but this is one of the major biblical requirements discussing marriage is that a woman is looking to find a husband to help, to be his help meet. It's a very simple thing. And moving on after point number two, neither man or woman are under compulsion to get married. So even though the natural state of man is not to be alone, there is no compulsion, according to 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Paul gives admonition about, is it a requirement, basically, that you have to get wed, and the requirement is not there. You're not required to do that, and you can go read 1 Corinthians 7, 1 on your own. So there are some people who look down on people who are perfectly happy being single. Now, it's not the natural state. It's not the normal thing, and 1 Corinthians 7 discusses that, that most people, the vast majority of people, are not prone to celibacy, and this is why they should be married. Now, there was an interesting aspect um, for making marriages, because marriage is compulsory in one uh, situation. That's where a single man and a single woman, neither married or betrothed, uh, they commit sexual sins with each other. Some call it fornication. But basically, they have sexual contact with each other, and they have no right to do so. The remedy for this and compulsion is that these two must marry. Exodus 23, 16 through 17. So, making marriages compulsory, the only way it is compulsory, is if two single people decide that they're going to engage in sexual activity. And God says they are now required to get married. Now, there is a caveat there which we'll get to in a little bit uh, later on, probably not right now. Uh, but there is a reason why there isn't a compulsion under certain circumstances where the father is required to protect his daughter, not from making uh, the wrong choice per se. In other words, looking at the man and saying, well, I don't think he's a good match for you. But the woman has now made a mistake. The man has made a mistake. She may have been seduced, but he did so knowingly. And so the law forces him to get married. But the law also allows for a father to intercede for his daughter and her mistakes and not force her to marry a man who would not be a good match for her, but she was seduced into the activities that she was engaging in. 
And so we'll get into that later. But marriage is compulsory for sexual activity between young people, uh, meaning single people. Next, whoredom, either male or female, is forbidden. Deuteronomy 23, 17. Now, this is interesting because sexuality is a really big topic amongst the young people, and sex before marriage is a major issue in and out of the church. But according to God, in the Christian communities, Israel of old, Israel of the new, which is us, the church, new and Old Testament, whoredom, sexual activity outside of marriage, should not be named in our communities. So, this is why we have biblical requirements to get married. Back to 1 Corinthians 7. Bible also says that men shall leave their father and mother and cleave to their wife. Genesis 2.24 Basically, it's real simple. The man is underneath his father. He leaves that protection to strike out on his own and to start his brand new family where instead of being underneath his father's authority, he will then take up the yoke as the responsible husband and eventual father. The woman leaves the protection of her family, protection of her father, protection of her mother and brothers and sisters, and goes now under the new authority, forming a brand new family, where before she was in submission to her father. She is now joined into marriage with a husband. So, yes, underneath his authority, but equal with him in the form of creating the marriage and in the form of helping to guide and direct the family. Now, the man is always responsible, but a woman's position is highly elevated when she's married from that of just a daughter to being the woman of the head of the home. And so she is the head woman uh, with her husband underneath him as an authority, but co-worker as a helpmate. And so these two are going to leave father and mother. This is a cognitive decision on the part of both. We've already said it's not compulsory. We've already said that it's not something that they have to do. They can stay single the rest of their lives. This means that fathers don't have any authority of any sorts. It's nowhere in the Bible to give their daughters away. None. There's lots of different things and lots of different ideas about what a father can and can't do, a mother can and can't do, the church can and can't do. But biblically speaking, the biblical requirements for marriage is that the man and the woman leave their parents, father and mother, cleave to their new spouse, and they join together and create a new family. I remember before somebody said, well, does that mean that the man and the woman get to choose their spouse? Well, yes, obviously it does. There's nothing that says that the parents or that the father gets to choose the spouse of their daughter. And they can't marry somebody unless he agrees that this was the right guy for her. That's not the case. Moving on, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, this is a major issue. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Now, to try to marry those of an opposite or alien faith is strictly forbidden by God and places you outside of the covenant people and the covenant community in the Old Testament and now in the New. People misunderstand this quite a bit, but it's an extraordinarily simple thing. 
within the Christian community, there are, I would say, differences, small ones, to be sure, in general. But they are still Christian. The giant thing here is not our petty differences that people would have over, well, some people believe in drinking, some people don't. Some people believe in dancing and smoking, and some people believe in whatever it might be. And others don't. This is not what it's talking about here. This is not an unequal yoking of people with unbelievers. It is an alien faith. And so the only thing that is really 100% over-the-top concrete here is that this is forbidden. It's not love. It's not what you feel in your heart. It's only about one simple thing. Are these people of a like faith? Because Christians are not allowed to be yoked together. Join together as one with someone who is not of the same faith. And we talked about this in a previous episode. Those that are converted and who are now married to somebody of an alien faith, and they are now different, they are supposed to stay with this person as long as the other person is content to live with them as the family. The entire family takes a new direction in obedience to God. However, if they uh, have a problem with that or they fight against that, then they are not under the requirement to stay married to such people. They are dead while they live. Moving on, another requirement is forbidding uh, to marry others of different faiths. Another one would be Deuteronomy 7 through through 4. Uh, you can't be unequally yoked. You can't marry those of different faiths. We've kind of covered this a lot. The near of kin are off limits, Leviticus 18, 6 through 18. And it goes through a lot in Leviticus 18, describing all the various different uh, close relatives. And I remember one time having a conversation with a person saying, well, let's map it out and see which, which kinfolk are available. But if you start there at the beginning of Leviticus 18, it says not to go to those near of kin. So basically, let's sum it up, uh, not getting too specific. If you know that this person is of known relatives, they're, they're known to you, uh, try looking up a different tree. You know, there's other ponds to fish in. Just stay away from it. So when you're trying to form marriages, uh, no one can agree. Uh, the Christian community cannot agree for those who are trying to marry non-Christians. They cannot uh, agree to the legitimacy of those who are trying to marry their uh, near of kin. An interesting aspect was that no military service uh, for the first year was was uh, was prohibited, Deuteronomy 24.5. So if you get married, of course, um, you could not be required to go in a combat situation to protect uh, the national interest of sorts, you could say. In other words, for a full year, the family was more important than national security. See, God flips everything on its head where people will give, out, give their lives over for their country. No, no, no. God says you give your life for your family first. Your God, your family, and then eventually down the road, your nation. But that is are nowhere close to the top of the line. And so your God comes first, your family comes next, and then, of course, as I said, Further down the road is the national interest, but they're nowhere close to the top. And that's something I've never heard anybody say before, how important the family is. And lastly, I don't want to talk about just the dowry and or it's called the bride price for some people, but 
people get kind of specific about this, but it's not really mentioned uh, uh, much at all in the Bible. In fact, there's only a few passages which specifically name it by name uh, and lots of different ways that that was used. So I don't get too much into this. I think there's some general principles that we can glean from this. But examples of a dowry. Uh, first one that I came across was Genesis 30, verse 20. And it was actually Leah, Jacob's wife, talking about her dowry. And the dowry that she was talking about actually did not come from Jacob. Um, she talks about her six sons that were given to her by God. And she says these were a dowry given to her by God so that her husband would dwell with her. So very interesting that it's God here who's given a dowry of some sorts is not talking about a requirement in order to get married. In the case of Jacob, however, we know that he had to work seven years, got tricked, and continued to work another seven years and got two. We already know that those are not our examples. But here is an example of what the Bible talks about as a dowry. And here Leah says God gave her a dowry. Shechem, has a prince in Shechem, he, of course, took advantage of Dinah, Jacob's daughter, and wanted to marry her and asked what kind of dowry that he wanted so he could marry her. They refused to marry them or have them married. Jacob tried to make peace. The brothers came up with a devious plan. All the men of the city had to be circumcised, Genesis 34, 12. Eventually, they went and killed them all. So no money was discussed about getting married. Just they had to convert. And then, of course, they used these things uh, in order to murder people. Uh, punishment for fornication and refusal was a dowry of virgins, Exodus twenty-two, seventeen. So punishment for fornication and refusal, this is going back to what we said about the compulsory marriage for sex for those people who are single. And there was, of course, a punishment, and you could be refused. So if you got married, then you had to give the dowry of virgins and get married. It doesn't explain what the dowry of virgins is. And then, of course, you could be refused by the father. If he said, no, you're not going to marry my daughter, you still had to pay, and you didn't get the wife. But it doesn't say what the dowry of virgins is at all. It just mentions it. Jacob wants to marry, so his dowry, which is not mentioned as a dowry, but that's what people call it, Seven years of labor times two, Genesis 29, 15 through 30. We had David, who was wanting to marry Mirab, which was one of Saul's daughters. And the dowry was supposed to be service, fight the battles of King Saul. 1 Samuel 18, 17 through 19. So David became his captain. Eventually, King Saul does not give Mirab to David, but gives her to someone else. So a complete trick. So King Saul, on one hand, says that he's going to approve of this, he's going to uh, think this is a good marriage, and then reneges entirely, and David's services for nothing. Then, Michelle, another of King Saul's daughters, likes David. King Saul wants to use this as an opportunity to kill David. So he comes up with the idea to, in 1 Samuel 18, 20-27, I don't want a dowry. Go and perform a feat and kill Philistines. Give me 100 foreskins, and you can marry my daughter. David does this, but he kills 200 instead and comes back alive. And he does eventually marry Michelle. Othanel also wanted to marry Aksa, and the dowry uh, by Caleb was he had to sack a city, Kerjathsefer, Joshua 15, 16 through 17. 
Now, all of these things, dowries all over the place, it's changed, it's something different. And so I don't think there's any reason to think in the, that the Bible has a very specific, this is what a dowry is. Now, there have been many commentators, R.J. Rushton, he was one of those, which said that the general consensus on the concept of a dowry was about three years of wages. So a man could work and save up three years roughly worth of wages, and this would show his responsibility. And um, there are also things in the Bible where dowries were given to the parents as kind of a protection for the daughter. Uh, now, of course, nowadays, if a man gave three years of wages to the father of his prospective uh, spouse, most likely the father is just going to run away with the money and, and blow it, kind of like what happened with Laban and the two daughters who he did steal their, their dowry, which is why they stole his household gods later on when they left. But there would be no appeal. And so there's many issues through this stuff, and there's no deliberate commands by God. And going back to the first episode we had on Christian Reconstruction 101. So I do think it's a good idea to have these as general ideas to promote for our children, men and women, so that they can see what it is about to save money, to be responsible. And it's not just about, well, I love her. Well, show that you're responsible. Show that you're ready to take on a family, both male and female. And uh, saving three years' worth of wages, that shows a lot of responsibility. It shows a lot of ability to save and make money, especially as the man. And uh, so I do think those are some good guidelines to go on, but the Bible never has a dowry that's commanded by God anywhere in the Bible which states this is what you're supposed to do, this is your commanded, God-given example, do this if you're a Christian. So that's not there either. So those are some of the things that, as a father, I'm going to be looking into. If you are a parent and you're a father, those are some of the things you should look into as well. But our children, we can say for them, their normal status is to get married, both male and female. We can also say without a doubt that they don't have to get married if they don't want to. They are not allowed to have sex outside of marriage. If they do, they should wed unless there's a problem. They are to be forbidden to marry unbelievers. You can't stop them. They could do it anyways. But they would be then outside the Christian community, profane people. They would have to teach to make sure you're not marrying your next of kin, which some people, I guess, would have a problem with that. Um, for some reason, they like to do that. I don't know why people would. And then, of course, the concept of dowry and bride price, preparing your children with the idea that in order to have a family, it takes money. It takes responsibility. So let's go ahead and wrap up here on Christian Reconstruction 101. Biblical requirements for making marriages. Thank you for joining me. I hope this gives you something to think about, something simple here. I know that this is what I came up with, so maybe it'll help you. But Jeremy Walker signing off. Thank you very much for joining me.